Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books in Caribbean Studies channel, part of the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host today, Ari Barbalat. Today, I am in dialogue with Dr. Adrian Fraser. He is a social commentator, historian, author, and columnist with the Searchlight newspaper. He is the former coordinator of the Caribbean People's Development Agency and the retired head of the University of the West Indies Open Campus in St. Vincent and the Grenadines. In the past, he was also a teacher at the undergraduate level. He worked at the community level with various non-governmental organizations. Today, we will be discussing his book, The 1935 Riots in St. Vincent, From Riots to Adult Suffrage, published by University of the West Indies Press, 2016. Adrian, it's an honor to be in dialogue with you today. And thanks for inviting me to be part of this. Thank you. It's it's a genuine honor and privilege. To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired the scholar and scholarly work of your adulthood? The scholar you'd become as an adult and the scholarly work you would engage in later in life. Well, I grew up in um, one of the towns of St. Vincent and Grenadines called Barrel. It's on the western side of St. Vincent, um, a rural rural community, um, very much involved in fishing and in agriculture. I went to the St. Vincent Grammar School, which was one of the few secondary schools at that time. And... Um, during my period at the grammar school, my history had been mainly um, the history of Britain and Europe, because we were part of the whole colonial um, picture, and uh, um, that is what we were taught. We did the Cambridge in Britain, what GCE 11, GCE 11. And while taking history as one of my pet subjects, I mourned the fact that we knew very little about the history of St. Vincent of the West Indies. Generally, there, there were a few works around, but not very much emphasis was put on that. So that um, I'd always had the interest in trying to do some research on the history of St. Vincent and the Caribbean. Then 
at the grammar school, I was very much interested in sports, cricket, and football. Got an opportunity to go to Canada to study at the University of the West Indies, University of Western Ontario, sorry, in London, Ontario. And um, I began to do, to take classes in the first British Empire, which involved, of course, the, the West Indies. And that really gave me a kickoff. But apart from that, two of my my two professors there impressed me quite a lot. One of them was um, the British, working on the British Empire. And I, I saw it really developed my interest in looking broadly at Britain's involvement in the Caribbean. So once I graduated, I had an opportunity really to go to the United States. I'd gotten a fellowship to go to the United States, but decided I wanted to go back to the West Indies to start doing some serious work on Vincentian history. I got back to St. Vincent, re-employed as a teacher, and got an opportunity to go to the University of the West Indies in Barbados, where I got in my focus was on peasants and labor studies because I've always had a, an interest in workers and in, in, in the peasantry at that particular time. So I started with that, um, went back to, to work at the St. Vincent Grammar School, which was my alma mater. I was involved in the trade union, the teachers' trade union. From there, I worked for three years with a community development project in Barley, a place where I was born. It was, it was um, a project where the church, the Anglican church, owned quite a lot of land. And the land had been leased to, over the years, to people who were working on the land. And up to that time, they had not had title to the land. They were still paying some of them paying rent to the church. So a decision was taken by the Caribbean churches to, with, in conjunction with the Anglican church, to try to turn over the lands to the people who had been living in it for quite a number of years. And I was invited to be coordinator of that particular project. Not only were they going to be assisting the people in acquiring their land, but also in developing the area in terms of stimulating economic projects and in developing the, 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 um, the community. So I worked there for three years and then had a chance of renewing the contract, but then decided I should go on to, to study. I should mention that, um, I should mention that um, when I went back to St. Vincent, I was also able to spend two years in Barbados doing a master's in um, the development of the peasantry and uh, laborers. And uh, after I had finished my contract with that project in Barley, I decided to go back to further my studies. And uh, when I made the decision, it was quite late. And it was easier for me to apply to the University of Western Ontario because they had all my records. So I was able to get in there and then you know, I did my PhD studies there, then came back to St. Vincent. 
University of Western Ontario is not far from me. I, I live in Toronto, so I, I know very much where that is. Yeah, because I, in fact, um, one of the things I liked about the University of Western, well, being in London is that it was near to Toronto, and I had relatives living in Toronto. So I used to spend quite a lot of time, especially during the summer, in Toronto. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to your readers? Okay, um, the issue of the 1930s came out of my PhD thesis. And uh, when I examined what was being written about the 1930s, I realized that there was something missing. And I, I should mention too that one of the problems I had with um, West Indian history is that in the general narrative about West Indian history, the smaller islands and, you know, I single out St. Vincent, St. Vincent the Grandines as it's known today, was almost like a, a footnote to West Indian history. And when I looked at St. Vincent, there were so many important things about St. Vincent that I thought needed to be factored into the, the larger narrative of the Caribbean. So for instance, um, not many people knew until recent times that St. Vincent was the last, one of the last islands or colonies to have been colonized by the British. So if just to give an example, um, Barbados, Antigua, and some of those islands were colonized by the British in the 16, 1620s to 1630s. St. Vincent, the British did not come into St. Vincent until 1763, which meant if you take the sugar industry, which was the dominant economic activity during that period of slavery, it meant that if you take, again, I'm using Barbados as, as an example, they started producing sugar in the 1640s. So they were producing sugar for more than 100 years before St. Vincent actually got into the production of sugar. And one of the reasons for that is that the indigenous people of St. Vincent fought against the British from, from that period until 1797, when... A number of them captured and who were surrendered were sent in exile to, to Central America, to places like Belize, Honduras, Guatemala, Nicaragua. And today we hear very much about the Garifuna of Central America, but the home of the Garifuna people was St. Vincent and the Grenadines. And uh, this is something which also featured in, in the work I had done, is that by the time St. Vincent got into the cultivation of sugar, sugar was no longer the dominant prosperous economic activity as it had been. It had been going through some, some rough periods. But we got in there and from 1805 until 1827, 1828, St. Vincent was the second in terms of the overall production of sugar, um, second to Jamaica. So a lot of those other countries that had been producing sugar in were well below what St. Vincent had been producing. And I mentioned this again just in passing to say that one of the reasons for this 
was that the land which the Garifuna people, which the indigenous people had uh, been um, occupying were the best sugar lands. And that is one of the reasons why they were expelled from St. Vincent, so that the British could control those lands and produce sugar. And once they had gotten rid of them and they passed all the lands to, to planters, people bought the, the lands, went into sugar cultivation, then sugar in St. Vincent began to prosper for a period of time. And all of this really sets the pattern for what happened in the 1930s, because one of the things which came out about the 1930s is that a lot of things had not fundamentally changed between that period and the period of the 1930s. And that was one of the reasons why people rioted, because their circumstances, their social environment and the opportunities offered to them were not far in advance of what they had when they were just... Um, just got their emancipation from slavery. So I try to tie in what happened there to what happened then. And, and of significance is that when St. Vincent became independent in 1979, the person who was selected as the first national hero was one of the indigenous people, Chateauier. You know, so that, that fits into the, the whole picture of what was happening in St. Vincent. What are the primary themes in your book? What argument does your book advance? Okay. Now, first of all, um, when you read about the 1930s, the emphasis is on the plantations, on the problems with sugar cultivation. In the case of Trinidad, you have oil. And, but a, a lot of the activity strikes and so on took place around the, the, on the plantations around the sugar cultivation, largely. In the case of St. Vincent, the riots started at the courthouse where the legislative council, as it was then called, or the legislative assembly was our meeting. And it's interesting that because before the riots in St. Vincent, you had had riots in St. Kitts earlier, in 1935. And the Chief Justice, in reference to what was happening in St. Vincent, said, in comparing St. Vincent to St. Kitts, in St. Kitts, the anger of the people and the riots were against the people, meaning the plantation owners and the dominant elite. While in the case of St. Vincent, it was directly against the government. So it took place in a different setting for, than most of the islands. And in a lot of the other islands and colonies, you had strikes and you had a certain amount of activity. But in the case of St. Vincent, there was not a, a lot of this. So that what happened on that day of the riots took the governor and administrator completely by surprise because there was no indication to them. And, and the, the governor really said that he said you know it is strange that none of us knew that something like this was about to happen so there was something unique about what was happening in St. Vincent the the um, way in which it, it occurred and the, the whole socio-economic environment compared to some of the other islands which are still plantation structured what would you like listeners to get out of our dialogue today um, to realize, first of all, that 
when we think of the history of the Caribbean, there, there are certain things that are not featured um, as being very significant, but are significant there. Some of the islands have their own unique um, activities and unique developments. And in the case of St. Vincent, because those rats had a lot to do with a number of other things, and I'll point one out for you. Whereas sugar was no longer a very prosperous activity in most of the islands, in St. Vincent, it was almost dominant. In fact, by the time of the riots, two crops became dominant, you know, rather than sugar, which had been before. And those were arrowroot and Sea Island cotton. And the important thing about the arrowroot and the Sea Island cotton was that those two products um, were ones which, were which could be easily produced by peasants and small farmers on the kind of land they had. In the case of sugar, you needed large expanse of land. There was a lot of investment in machinery and things of that sort. But in the case of Arut and Sea Island cotton, a peasant on the small acres of land could cultivate Arut and Sea Island cotton. So that when, for instance, some of the tables I have in the book give you a picture of who was producing what, what um, percentage of the different um, crops uh, or economic produce were being produced by peasants as opposed to, to the estates. So that there are certain things that are um, interesting about St. Vincent, where this is concerned. And I deliberately titled this book From Riots to Adult Suffrage because what happened in 1935 paved the way for adult suffrage in 1951. And by adult suffrage, what we mean is that um, once you were 21 years of age, you then had uh, the franchise, you, you were then able to vote. Before this period, voting was by income and um, property. So that a number of the people, the majority of people were really left out of the, the political picture. And um, it, this, is, this is very important in that it occurred to the governor when the riots took place. He said, this, this has shown me that um, there are large numbers of people who are not represented in the Legislative Council. And that awareness from him, well, he spelled it out, but he must have been aware of it before, meant that something had to be done to prevent any future occurrence. These people needed to be represented in Parliament. You know, so that is to, to tie that in. So that um, rats show, in the case of St. Vincent, not only that there, there were different factors that led to and impacted on the rats, but also that it was so significant in constitutional development and in the further development of the country in that you have adult suffrage and the question of federation of the islands came together. What would you like listeners to get out of our dialogue today? Um, some understanding of why the riots took place in St. Vincent and why they took place in the way they did, how people reacted to the riots, and how people became politically conscious and, and developed, and in particular, the role of George McIntosh, who's featured in the book, because 
George McIntosh today has been recommended as a future national hero. And I expect in another year or so, we would name other national heroes. And one of the persons who has been identified is George McIntosh. So George McIntosh came out of those 1935 riots and played an important part in the development of the country until adult suffrage in 1951. Who is George McIntosh? Can you explain to our listeners why he is significant? Yeah. George McIntosh was um, a pharmacist. He was the son of a labor, laboring woman and um, a Scottish gentleman. And um, as a pharmacist, he his pharmacy was near to the marketplace. And a number of peasants and labor workers generally who went to the market, particularly on Saturdays, after the day at the market was finished, they would go to his drugstore and buy certain things. And he was not only about, you know, medicines and so on, but he also produced a number of other things which were produced outside of St. Vincent, he, put, he tried to produce local, um, a local alternative to, to some of that. But he was also politically involved because in St. Vincent, 1919, you had what was called the Representative Government Association. Now, from the, 17, the 1870s, St. Vincent was what is called a crown colony in that there was no elected representation. It was the governor with people who were handpicked and nominated who ran the country. And there had been a cry for the end of Crown Colony rule and that there be more elected representation. So that a commission was sent out in 1923, 1924 um, by Major Wood. And this commission recommended that an elected element be introduced into the Legislative Assembly. The only problem with that, although it was an advance on what went on before, is that the qualification was still high, which meant that a lot of Vincentians were left out and only persons who owned a certain amount of land and who had property could, could get in. So even with the establishment of a new legislative assembly in 1925 with elected representation, a lot of people still did not qualify either to vote or to stand as elected representatives. So that the struggle from 1925 up to 1935 involved a call for more people who were conscious of the, the situation involving the poor people, the land, landless class, so that some of these people could be represented in parliament. And you know that is what that is what happened. So a number of things came together in 1935, including the fact that the Great Depression was beginning to have its effect on, uh, on St. Vincent. And in the book, I quote a poem by D.A. Niles, where he was speaking about depression and giving a picture of what was happening in the country economically. 
And, you know, that had a big impact coming as it did through, through poetry. So that it is important that people get an understanding about it. Because the same thing was happening in the other islands too, which were under Crown Colony government and the Representative Government Association, which was formed in 19, 1919. This was the organ pushing to have a, a removal of Crown Colony and the introduction of elected representation. And you had similar organization in Grenada. And I mentioned Grenada because one of the key figures in the Representative Government Association in Grenada, a man by the name of Albert T. Marichaud, who was one of the father figures of Federation, he was a close friend of George McIntosh and um, paid a number of visits to St. Vincent where he spoke at meetings of the Representative Government Association. But also, and this is something which I featured in the in the book. Um, it was during the time when the Italians had invaded Ethiopia, Abyssinia, and uh, McIntosh was the vice president of the Friends of, of um, Abyssinia. And one of his jobs was to do some advocacy during the region. So he came to St. Vincent, he addressed different meetings where he was updating people on what was happening in Italy. People became very conscious. And um, in fact, at one meeting, one of the figures who had been arrested uh, during the riots, he, after the meeting, listening to McIntosh, he came out and he said, my name from now on is Haile Selassie. You know, so he was identifying, he was identifying with that. But McIntosh, um, so he was key to the Representative Government Association. And uh, McIntosh featured in the 1935 riots in that because the people had a close association with him, he was a man they could speak to. When they heard about additional income or revenue being created, well, attempt to create additional revenue, but by putting tax taxes on a number of goods, they approached Macintosh to see if he could assist them in some way. And what Macintosh did was to go to the meeting of the Legislative Council to ask for a personal meeting with the governor where he was going to try and raise some of the concerns of the people. And incidentally, one of the issues that is very much talked about it um, in the country and continues to be is that one of the um, products on which they were increasing the revenue was matches. And, uh, you know, it seems to be very insignificant, but it meant a lot to people who depended on, on matches to do what, what they had to do. And uh, this tied in with the, the attitude which the colonial authorities had to the ordinary people because they were saying, and the governor himself was saying, nothing um, about what happened in St. Vincent, the ordinary people were not capable of organizing that. So there has to be some big header, some person behind who was the master organizer. So they then jumped on George McIntosh and accused him of being the ringleader and he was charged with a treason felony. Now when they had the trial of George McIntosh before the trial of the people who were arrested for participating in the riots, when that trial was dismissed, the people who realized that McIntosh was their friend 
and he was unjustly arrested, spent some time in jail before the trial. When he was dismissed, the people came, put McIntosh on, lifted him on their shoulders, took him outside and, and celebrated. And McIntosh then realized that there was a gap here of people who needed representation. And out of this, McIntosh formed an organization, the St. Vincent Working Men's Cooperative Association. And the year after it was launched, and they became involved in politics and dominated the politics of St. Vincent right up to 1951. So McIntosh played that, that key role. You alluded to Haile Selassie earlier yeah. on. In that context, I'd be curious to ask you, how was Italy's invasion of Ethiopia or Abyssinia, uh, Abyssinia perceived in St. Vincent? What was unique about St. Vincent's perception vis-a-vis -vis other islands in the Caribbean of Italy's invasion of Ethiopia? What was unique about the I, spectrum I of opinion it, there? Yeah, I don't think it was unique because that same feeling was expressed in a number of other countries. In fact, mm -hmm. St. Vincent was really behind time in terms of the advocacy involved. But to single out St. Vincent, the Marcus Garvey movement had a branch, the Universal Negro Improvement Association had a branch in St. Vincent. And this was from 1919 to the 1920s. It, it died, but there was a certain consciousness about the people, of the treatment of Black people, and the fact that a dominant elite, which was mainly white, controlled the country. And that lasted for quite a while. And I also mentioned in the book that in the 1920s and in 1930s, the newspapers began to um, list and to write about persons who were speaking on behalf of what they called the Negro race. And I mentioned, for instance, um, a Black in Martinique who had been given this literary prize and the newspapers carried a lot of information about that because it was a, a way of showing the, the Black people that, you know, we are advancing, you know, we are above what we are um, led to, to believe we are. And that kind of feeling existed. The newspapers, generally, when the war in Ethiopia started, ran a lot of stories, updating people on what was happening. And uh, Albert T. Marisha from Grenada, who, as I pointed out, was the vice president of the Friends of, of Ethiopia or Abyssinia, actually delivered a number of lectures in St. Vincent again, um, trying to lift people's consciousness. And they said at, the, at these meetings, quite a number of people turned out to hear what was going on. So there was consciousness about it. And uh, the cable boards, because of course we are speaking about a time when telephones will not be, be very um, common around. The cable, people used to go and read the cable boards to find out what was happening. And they were identifying with the Abyssinians against the, the Italian. So they, they struck a chord, not only in St. Vincent, but in some of the other countries that they are fighting for people like us. And here is um, this foreign country coming in and invading what was um, before one of the countries in Africa that had not been colonized by the Europeans. 
Can you go into more detail about Albert's T. Mary show of Grenada? What is his historical legacy? Mary show really, first of all, started out as the editor of a paper that he created called the West Indian and um, became involved, well, from the beginning, there were two things that he, he pushed. One was a federation of the West Indies and, was, and one was the constitutional development of the individual countries, and in that case, Grenada. He became involved in the Grenada Representative Government Association was that, like St. Vincent, which was pushing for um, the, the removal of Crown Colony and the introduction of elected representation. So he became very much involved in that, was popular in the country that he spoke out on matters related to the constitution. And he had, like McIntosh, a close relationship with the poorer people in the country. And then he became involved in the Italian-Abyssinian struggle where he was speaking out on behalf of Abyssinia. And because of his relationship with George McIntosh, he spent, he came to St. Vincent on a number of occasions to speak at meetings of the Representative Government Association or later on when McIntosh formed his own administration at meetings of that administration. So there was that close contact between them. And I should also point out that um, this was a period when in the region, people were beginning to talk about a federation a coming together of the colonies. It is also something which the which British favored, but for different reasons. In the case of the British, it was economically beneficial to them if they could economize and, um, and have these, these units rather than spending in the different, the different countries. But in the case of the Caribbean people, they saw a coming together of the region as being very important in terms of their whole constitutional development. So that is, um, that is what was taking place at that time. And Marichaud really featured, and he was apparently a very good orator, was well respected, and people listened to him, and he had quite an impact not only in Grenada but also in St. Vincent. Who is I, I should mention that when, when the Federation was started in 1958, he was appointed a representative in Grenada as a senator in the Federal Assembly because his whole life was about creating a federation. Who is Claude Hadley? Why is he notable in the events that you narrate in this book? Yeah, Claude Hadley. Um, was a proprietor, owner of the Mount William Estate, one of the estates on the eastern side of um, St. Vincent. And he was a local priest, a lip preacher, as they call him, in the Anglican Church. Apparently, was well respected. One of his workers, a uh, man by the name of Lem Williams, had worked for him as a driver for, I, I think, more than 15 years. And Lem Williams had been arrested for being implicated in the 1935 riots. Um, when he was released, that is before the trials, he realized that he was getting a, a different kind of reaction from Claude Hadley because he expected Claude Hadley to come and, and support him. 
Claude Hadley, Ptolemy would come back to work when he was freed of those charges against him. Lem Williams had worked with Claude Hadley for quite some time. Apparently, he was very angered by this. So he decided that he was going to get rid of Claude Hadley. He, he bought arsenic, went to the home of Claude Hadley, hid there. And when Hadley came into this particular room, he just bludgeoned him with a hatchet or something of this sort and drank arsenic poisoning. You know, but um, people who said that Claude Hadley was a well-respected person whom they all admired and his death, especially by someone who had worked for him for a number of years, was something which affected quite a lot of people in, in that area. So that is how he fits into, into the picture. How does your book advance our understanding of the economic history of the British West Indies? Yeah. What I try to do is to paint a picture of what was happening in St. Vincent, which was to some extent different from what was happening in a number of the other islands because the history of the West Indies during the period of slavery and the period after slavery had to do with what was happening with sugar. Um, the fortunes of a country depended on the, the sugar industry and when the sugar industry was doing well or when sugar prices were well, the country benefited to some extent. In the case of St. Vincent, we had a different kind of situation because after emancipation, and I use 1838 as the date of emancipation since um, the period after between 1834 and 1838 was a period of what is called apprenticeship where some of the people who were supposed to have been freed still had to work for, for their um, masters. And I just want to mention to this is that when um, the slaves were emancipated in 1834, which was the official date, the people who were compensated were the proprietors, not the working people. And the reason was that these emancipated people the people who worked on the estate, the enslaved people, that they were actually the property of these proprietors. So they were compensating the proprietors for, for um, taking away their property from them. In a recent book by Hilary Beckles, who is um, the vice chancellor of the University of the West Indies, he was making the point that even though no compensation was paid to the people who had been enslaved, the enslaved people also paid compensation to the proprietors because they were expected to work for part of the week for the proprietors without being paid so that the, the proprietors themselves were, were benefiting from, from this. And um, so in the case of St. Vincent, by the end of the 19th century, by the 1890s, it was clear that the sugar industry could not last for very, very much longer. And there was fear that people would rise up because the, the economic situation was really becoming very desperate. And uh, the British government in 1897 set up what is called a West Indian Royal Commission to go to the countries to investigate the situation and to make recommendations. 
one of the recommendations they made was that there be land settlement, that people needed land. And he pointed out that in the case of St. Vincent, this was particularly urgent. And in St. Vincent, in 1898, you had one of the largest, most horrific hurricanes to have attacked St. Vincent and some of the other islands, the 1898 hurricane. And added to that, four years after, you had an eruption of the volcano in St. Vincent. And by that time, it was clear that the sugar industry could no longer survive. So they had to look for alternatives. Now, cotton, but a different kind of cotton was being produced, used to be produced before, but it was limited largely to the Grenadine Islands, to some of the Grenadine Islands. And the planters at different times when sugar was not doing well would go into the production of arrowroot, hoping that sugar would revive and then they could go back to the sugar. So arrowroot was always there. And then cotton, um, you had a different kind of cotton. As, as I said, it was produced mainly in the, the grenadine. I, I might have said arrowroot, but I meant cotton in the grenadine was being produced. And uh, a decision was taken by the British government to introduce the island cotton. So um, in 1903, the island cotton was introduced as an alternative to sugar. Also, people began, the planters began to spend more time with arrowroot. But in 1899, based on this royal commission, which, as I said, had come to the West Indies, the government in St. Vincent, fearing that there might be serious writing in St. Vincent, decided to introduce a land settlement scheme. So from 1899, some of the estates were bought from the planters and passed allowed to workers on the estate who had to pay um, over a period of time. And once they had fully paid for the land, they were then given titles to the land. The only problem with that was that the amount of land available was not did not meet the needs of the people. And in fact, the authorities, the colonial authorities, found themselves in a situation where they were committed to estate production. That is all they had known for these colonies. And even though they were forced to begin these land settlement schemes, they always felt that we need to go back to estate production so that there was a, a limit on what they were prepared to do. And between 1899 and 1912, when um, at least one of the islands of the Grenadines, which had been owned by a single proprietor, when that island was bought over by government, that had been the end of the land settlement scheme. And the people were still demanding more lands. And um, that didn't take place until 1932. So that St. Vincent became a country where the estate was not as um, dominant as it used to be. And uh, the important thing about arrowroot and sail and cotton was that those were crops which could be produced by small farmers and the peasants. And so that, that paid, that helped the situation a lot, but they still there were so many people who could not get employment on the estate and who needed some needed land 
in order to provide for themselves. So that is what was happening with St. Vincent until the 1940s and 1950s, they went into the production of bananas. Again, bananas between 1940s and the 1980s was the dominant crop and really played a significant role in providing people with income and a lot of the housing in St. Vincent, particularly in the rural areas, came out of their involvement in the production of bananas. Bananas like Sea Island cotton and arrowroot could be planted by small farmers on their small acres of land. So it benefited not only the plantation owners, but also the ordinary people who existed only on a few acres of land. We have a transition from, from um, sugar to arrowroot and cotton, and then you had uh, bananas. And of course, before the British came in 1763, the, um, the island had been diversified. They were producing a variety of crops. But after 1762, from 1766, when St. Vincent began to produce sugar, um, they depended very much on a single crop. So that, that has been the history, as opposed to some of the other islands, which still continued on the sugar until it came a stage much later on when sugar was no longer profitable and they had to branch over into other areas. And in a number of these countries, they turned to tourism. St. Vincent at this stage, because once um, bananas, once Britain entered the European, European Union, there was a problem with um, bananas in that they used to be able to sell their bananas in Britain under special circumstances or special conditions. This stopped when Britain entered the European Union. And the St. Vincent now is beginning to put a lot more emphasis on tourism, but it is still way behind um, some of those other countries, which very much earlier had invested in, in tourism. So that this is to, to really complete the picture of what was happening in the Caribbean and to show that at least in the case of St. Vincent, there were two crops. And the thing about St. Vincent, especially with Arut, it was the only, it had worldwide recognition because there were a few other places which were producing Arut. And also its sale and cotton um, apparently was um, well recognized elsewhere. So that um, for a period of time, St. Vincent was known for its Arut and its sale and cotton. What, what I'm in, in doing this, I'm trying to, to more or less round out the picture of economic activity in the Caribbean and to show that it was not all about sugar and the plantation. Here in the case of St. Vincent, opportunities were produced or were demanded by workers to be more involved, to have land where they could contribute by producing their arrowroot and their sale and cotton and later on their bananas. And I must also mention that one of the other things that was important about St. Vincent is that um, St. Vincent, the peasants and small farmers exported a lot of their produce to Trinidad and, and to Barbados. Now, anyone who knows St. Vincent, you have St. Vincent and the Grenadines, and part of the Grenadines is owned by Grenada. So there was a lot of shipping in the Grenadines, and it was easy for these small farmers to get their goods 
um, to Trinidad going through the Grenadine and also to Barbados because Barbados had from very early because the lands in Barbados were very flat they invested mostly in sugar whereas in the case of St. Vincent because of the topography there was a lot of land in the interior which was mountainous and which could not um, produce sugar in the, in the way they wanted to so, in terms of the topography, again, this affected what St. Vincent was able to do with sugar. But, so, I'm showing that, at least in the case of St. Vincent, you had two crops, which for a time um, took the place of sugar and which produced some benefits to the poorer people in St. Vincent once they had access to land. Who is John Sardine? Can you tell us about him and his importance in the events you chronicle? Okay, John Sardine, and I mentioned John Sardine in reference also to a John de Souza. John Sardine was a merchant in Chauncey. Now, let me explain that the riots first started in Kingston, and then you had writing in... Um, Georgetown, which is to the north on that same day. But when uh, people felt it was over on the second day, which is the 22nd of October, there was rioting in Camden Park. And uh, the rioters reached as far as Chauncey, which was really uh, blocking off if much. Um, Camden Park virtually ran into Kittles and a place called Chauncey. So the writing did not go further than Chauncey. And uh, this John Sardine was a merchant in, in uh, Chauncey. And he came into the picture because when they were speaking about the racial aspect of the riots, John Sardine claimed to have heard people speaking about you know, their whole attitude to the white race and you know, making certain references and so on. So he's brought in mainly mainly that to show that there was that element. In the same sense, John de Souza, who lived in Camden Park, was also owned a shop. And he was himself and Sardine were Portuguese because some of the Portuguese immigrants who came into St. Vincent in the 1840s actually lived on some of those estates. So you have John de Souza in Camden Park and Sardine in Chauncey. Now, John de Sousa, apparently it was said that when the writing started, he lent bullets to one of the members of the, the militia, which was helping to um, helping the police to, to bring an end to the writing. He lent bullets to one of the members of the militia, and the word went around that he had done so. And the word was that here is Mr. de Sousa, lending bullets to this member of the militia so that he could kill black people. So they started stoning his property, his house, and his, his, um, his store. And uh, John de Souza had to be escorted to the back of his house where there was a river, went down to the sea, and was able to borrow a boat, I think, from the manager of the, of the estate, the Camden Park estate, and got to Kingston Way he was able to, to get some security. So both of them were brought in to show this particular aspect 
of the writing and the whole atmosphere that was created around that time. What was the 1939 Ford-Brown report? What did it stipulate? What were its ramifications? Um, after the 19, the riots of the 1930s, because it, it was one thing to hear that there was writing in um, St. Kitts and writing in in um, St. Vincent, but then you began the writing in Trinidad and Barbados, Jamaica, and so on. And then the British government realized that something had to be fundamentally wrong. While during this period, you were having rights in all of these areas. So they had a different number of commissions. You had the, the what was called the Moyne Commission in 1945, which came to investigate conditions. And in 1939, there was the Ordbrone Report on Labor Conditions. And they visited St. Vincent, and then they, they spoke of the poor housing condition by the laborers and peasants. And St. Vincent, the claim was, was fairly healthy, but the housing condition was bad and there was overcrowding. And they also paid some attention to the conditions involving the establishment of trade unions, stating that the trade union legislation in St. Vincent up to that time had been very primitive, very out of, out of date, and they could not accommodate the demand that laborers were making. And those are the two main, it spoke about other aspects, but St. Vincent was just an, um, one of the other countries it mentioned. And those two things stood out, the, the um, housing and labor conditions. And um, based on their report, we began to see later on efforts to improve legislation. Now, when the Moyne Commission was sent to investigate circumstances that created the riots, one of the members of the commission was a member of the Trade Union Congress in Britain. And at that time, it was believed that it was in the best interest to have to sponsor, to legalize, and not, well, not to legalize, but to create conditions which would allow labor unions to develop. Because without labor unions, you're likely to have spontaneity and lack of control. So this was one of the reasons why Citroen, who, who was a member of the Trade Union Congress, was brought there. And he, when he came to St. Vincent, actually spoke to workers in the courthouse. He said he was not speaking as a member of the commission, but he was also a member of the Trade Union Congress, and he's speaking about the benefits of trade unionism once it was properly organized. And um, so the, the British government for some time felt that it was better to have a trade unions with a legislative framework that um, everybody understood rather than face a situation where people at any time could riot and bell. So that was part of the effort to recognize that a number of things were happening and you needed to be able to address to address them. So the odd wrong report because labor became very, very, very important. In fact, um, 
the development of labor unions was taking place around that time from the 1920s. And they had to really have a, an adequate framework to allow these trade unions to develop. So the Odd Brown Report, looking at labor conditions, was able to do that. Who is Samuel Lewis or Samuel Sheriff Lewis? Why is he noteworthy in the events that you chronicle? Yes, Samuel Sheriff Lewis was the same person I referred to as who said his name was Haile Selassie. Now, Mm. Sheriff Samuel Sheriff Lewis apparently had migrated to, I think, the Dominican Republic and he lived in Cuba, one of the other countries. Came back to St. Vincent and was politically conscious. Like many of those people who migrated to those countries, they were able to see the development of trade unions and they, they became very politically conscious. So he came back and he spoke, speaking out on a number of issues, but he formed a group which operated in an area just near to the courthouse where the writing took place. They would go and play dominoes and they would speak about what was happening in the country. At that time, I said there was the Italy Abyssinian invasion, so they'd speak about things like that. And they apparently, at the time of the riots, were playing dominoes or something of that sort in that area near to the courthouse, were aware that things were happening and then went over. And it was said, and one of the policemen who had been involved at that time, who was still alive and who I was able to interview, told me that Sheriff Lewis, as he was called, came in and he said he began to give instructions to people because he was more politically conscious. So even though he was not involved in how the rights and stuff, once he got there, he began to give out demands and so on. So he became a very important person and was actually arrested um, during, and, and got um, was, was convicted in the riots. But he had this reputation as someone who had come from overseas, politically conscious, and was aware of a number of things, and um, lost no time in speaking about speaking about those. And he had other persons with him. Another one is um, who's also featured in the book. Someone called Donna Romeo, who was one of the members of that group that they had. So he was Sheriff um, Samuel Lewis, but he said, Call me Haile Selassie. And that he said after Marisha from Grenada had addressed a gathering speaking about what was happening to the people in Ethiopia um, when the Italians were invading. Can you describe the circumstances surrounding the shooting of John Bull by Fred Hazel? What happened? How? When, where, and why did this transpire? No, the, the circumstances are, we do not have a lot of evidence to go by, but apparently John Bull, and I've never been able to find out what is the real name of John Bull because what happened at that time, and still happens today, is that a number of people are called by their nicknames. So sometimes you hear of this person, he said, I never knew him by that name. So there was John Bull, 
who was apparently involved in the writing. <clears throat> it was said that, um, well, not was said, but we know that um, Fred Hazel received a cut on his head during that period of writing when he was trained as a member of the militia and also he was a merchant, was trying to calm the crowd. He received a cut in his head, had to be carried to the hospital. And he said when he came back, he came back with a gun because he was a member of the militia. And he was told that John Bull was the person who was responsible for, for cutting him and apparently shot, shot John Bull. Um, there isn't a lot of evidence. The, the, the other, the, one of the problems I had to in writing about the, the riots is that once the riots, during the period of the riots, the government introduced um, a state of emergency, first of all, followed by press censorship, and then they had the seditious ordinance that was applied. So they were able to limit what was said about about the rights themselves. In fact, there's even one occasion when uh, one of the newspapers started, uh, um, I think it might have been the editor that said, what was wrong in Sydney? They were, they were trying to analyze the reasons for the rights. So they started out saying, what is wrong with Sydney? And they could go no further because the press censorship came in and they were prevented from writing that article. And for a long time, that has been one of the problems in terms of having any analysis of what was happening in St. Vincent. And when uh, these, these um, restrictions, seditious public press censorship, and so, when they were removed, we were then moving into, into a period of elections and the newspapers and public opinion began to focus on the election rather than the riots which are taking place over a year ago. And the, the seditious publication ordinance and also press censorship and the modern situation, the other, the newspapers in the region, other organizations, even the from Trinidad, we, we have um, them asking the governor not only to have a commission of inquiry, but also to denounce those people who killed, who killed the people at, at the riots. And you had so that there was a strong reaction, especially to things like press censorship. And the newspapers from the Barbados, Jamaica, Trinidad, all of them really sided with the with the press in St. Vincent because they said that the press, I mean, they were not apologists for what happened, but they wanted to find out and to be able to investigate and write and to analyze what had happened. But because of these rigid regulations which were put in place, it was difficult for them to do that. So in looking at, the in trying to analyze what was happening, that is one of the things that was missing, that there was a lot of evidence, that a lot of information that the press might have had control of, but were unable to publish them because of these different regulations. So in uh, writing about the rights and trying to analyze it, we missed that, that section of people who were around, who had done some um, investigation themselves and who were not able to write about it for a long time. And when they were in a position to do so, 
they couldn't do it because people's attention were focused elsewhere. There were a few people who said that um, they did not, they, they considered it an excuse more than ever because they said, and I think they were naive in saying that, that um, after all, once it's information, you should be able to, to write about it, but that, that was not necessarily so. You know, they were really handicapped by these regulations which were put in place. And you have, um, in particular, the Cana Press, which was the Canadian press, the delegate Vincentian, he was very critical of what the government was doing. And the government tried to restrict what he said and appeal to the Canadian press authorities to, um, to try to censor him. And they eventually came to the Canadian Press Association came to the view that anything he has done, they would themselves do their own censorship and not leave it up to the government to do it. So there were all of these really restrictions which were put in place. And behind it all, you know, was the fact that the governor feared that if what was written about what was happening in St. Vincent got wide publicity, it was going to reflect on his governorship more than anything else, and that, that was part of it, so that he was able to prevent them from having a commission of inquiry, which even the governor very early had said that there needed to be a commission of inquiry, but he backed away. So you had these rights, and there was no commission of inquiry. The authorities in Britain really depended on what the governor had written about the, the rights, and used that as the, as the gospel truth to indicate to them what are the reasons behind the rights. Can you tell us about the HMS Challenger ship? What role did it play in the events described in your book? The HMS Challenger is one of those ships which warships which the British would have in the in the colonies. This particular one was um was in Grenada and Grenada was the center of the Winwood Islands which included Tobago, St. Vincent, Grenada. Dominica later on came in in 1940. And um, the, normally, when there was a request for the ship, um, they had to send the, the um, protocol, was that you had to send to, I'm not sure what he's called, but who was based, I think, in Bermuda. But because of the urgency of the situation, they appealed directly to Grenada to request that they send the challenger to St. Vincent because of the uprisings in St. Vincent. Now that request for the ship coming from Grenada was sent about 2.30 or 3.30 on the particular day. And part of the problem was that the cable house itself, which was not far from where the writing took place, had been damaged and they had to use um, hand equipment and go to Andersville um, a, a few miles away to be able to send this request to Grenada. The ship, the HMS Challenger came in and they brought some police officers also. And when they arrived in St. Vincent about midnight, things in, in um, Kingston were fairly quiet. So they, first of all, 
marched around the town to make people aware that, you know, here we are and we are prepared to take control of what was happening. But there's very little happening in Kingston at that time. They then went to the barracks and when they went to the barracks, they were able to relieve the local policemen who were stationed at the barracks and some of the members of the volunteer force. And it was shortly after they got word that there was rioting in Georgetown. So some of those policemen who were at the barracks, they were able to send them to Georgetown, which is to the northeast, northeast of, um, of Kingston. And they were able to send them to deal with whatever problems they were encountering in Georgetown. So it was the presence of the HMS Challenger. And even after the writing had stopped, the authorities decided to keep them for a few more days because there was always concern that um, there were still people who, who were rebellious but who were just lying low. Eventually, after a few days, they were sent. But the governor had heard about a strike that was supposed to be happening in Grenada, in St. Lucia, sorry. And with the talk about the Italy, Abyssinia, in Italy's invasion of Abyssinia, they feared that that strike and the atmosphere which was um, created by what was happening in Abyssinia would create problems. So they were able to send the HMS Challenger, when it left St. Vincent, it was able to go to St. Lucia and to take control of things. So it was one of these ships which the British had in the region where anytime there was any unrest anywhere, they would dispatch them to, you know, to wherever the unrest was taking place. Who is Ebenezer Duncan? Why is he notable in the events that you portray in this book? Okay. Ebenezer Duncan was um, a teacher. He was also the editor of a newspaper called The Investigator. He was involved in the Representative Government Association, which, as I said, was involved in this, um, this advocacy about getting rid of from calling the government and having um, representative government, legislative assembly made up of elected representation. So he was involved in the, uh, the RGA, the Representative Government Association, but he was also a close association of Macintosh. And I should have mentioned that uh, during the riots, there were different factions in the Representative Government Association. One faction came with George McIntosh and helped to create this new body called the St. Vincent Working Men's Cooperative Working Men's Association. And uh, um, Ebenezer Duncan joined McIntosh in this. In fact, in 1946, he was elected in one of the constituencies to the north. So he served as a member of the Legislative Council for a period of time. He got into some problems because he was a member of, um, he was a teacher and the authorities did not particularly like his involvement in, in what was happening and attempted to dismiss him. The, the, the Representative Government Association at the time had to come to his defense. So he was a character who 
was a teacher, but he also is known for, he wrote a history of St. Vincent, which is now out of print, but which for a long time was the only history of St. Vincent that was available. So he was a person who was very much involved in what was happening. In fact, during the day of the riots, when, uh, I don't know if I'd mentioned this before, but um, when uh, McIntosh had attempted to get an audience with the governor, and he was told that the governor would be prepared to meet with him at five o'clock. When McIntosh went into the, went downstairs into the courtyard where people were assembled, um, and he told them that the governor would meet with him at five o'clock. The people got angry because the governor was normally based in Grenada. He was the governor of the Winner Island. So each of the other islands had an administrator who was in place in the particular island, but overall it was the governor. And when he said he was going to meet with them at five, five o'clock, they assumed that he was just fooling them because at five o'clock he would be on his way back to Grenada. And that just antagonized the crowd more than ever. So a lot of um, the people that, that created the kind of atmosphere that led to the riots. I should also point out that some of the, well, based on the, the press reports, the persons who were the earliest ones to go to the courthouse to listen to what was happening in the Legislative Assembly, which was upstairs the courthouse, were women. They said that there were 15 women and all of them had sticks and so on coming in. And uh, one of the things about the history of St. Vincent, and I suspect with some of the other islands too, is that women were in the forefront of a, a lot of these activities, even during slavery. You know, but the unfortunate thing when you look at the history is that um, women were always left out of the picture. It is only in fairly recent times that people are beginning to, to look back and to really recreate the situation has existed where women played a more fundamental role than, than one expected. But at the courthouse, they said that these women were some of the earliest ones to have come in there and, you know, were very angry at, at what was happening. What transpired at the Conference of West Indians in Dominica in 1932? What were its implications for St. Vincent? Okay. The 1932 conference is usually called the unofficial conference, and it had something to do with what is called the Closer Union Commission, where the authorities wanted to bring together Trinidad and the Winwood and Leeward Islands into, into one unit. The, a number of the more liberal people wanted something more. They were looking in terms of a federation embodying a much larger group. So that they first of all were a number of people were very critical of the terms of reference of the Closer Union Commission. And therefore you had this conference in Dominica, which they called an unofficial conference, because they were dealing with some of the same themes that this Closer Union Commission was dealing with. They met in Dominica, they passed a number of resolutions, many of them relating to federation. One of the disappointments about the conference in Dominica was that even though 
many people were sympathetic to adult suffrage, adult franchise. It was difficult getting the group in that met to pass a resolution on adult franchise. But the, the chairman of that conference, who was a Dominican, Cecil Rawl, had pointed out that even though they were unable to present that as part of the resolution, adult franchise was an area that they were looking to because they felt that without adult franchise, without adult franchise, they would have been unable to have a, a federation. So they they saw federation and adult franchise as being very important. So there were some difficulties with that. And as it turned out, what happened is that shortly after, there were some changes to the constitution where the Closer Union Commission had recommended that the unofficial majority, that is um, a majority not controlled by, from the government side, because normally you would have a, um, people who are nominated based on their positions in government. And they decided that you should have an unofficial majority made up of elected representatives and at least one nominated unofficial, that is um, an somebody who is not a member of the government. And um, But at the same time, they wanted the governor to have his, his maintain his traditional rule, which meant that even if the unofficial grouping decided on a measure, the governor could really just overrule that and do what he thought was in the best interest of the country. So there were differences of opinion between the, the Royal, the Closer Union Commission and what took place in Dominica. And what, what took place in Dominica was just one of a number of regional gatherings of people who were advocating change. One of the, the other issues, for instance, in 1946, 45, in, in um, Barbados, you had a meeting of the Trade Caribbean Con Labor Congress, which was a grouping of unions or representative of unions who met in Dominica. It was launched in Dominica. And they made a number of serious recommendations relating to a federation, relating to education, and relating to a number of issues. And George McIntosh was a member of that um 1945 meeting of the Caribbean Labor Congress in Barbados. And George McIntosh was um, actually chairman of the education panel, which took a number of uh, very progressive steps demanding the history of university education and um, changes to the education system. So that you have throughout that particular period meeting of groups which were coming together to advocate for constitutional development and other changes for the benefit of the Caribbean people. And um, very often being critical of, of what is happening on the British side. But it should be pointed out that one of the things that was very ambiguous about the, the gathering in the, the unofficial conference in Dominica is that at the end of it all, they ended by singing the British national anthem and pledging the, their loyalty to the crown because some of them were 
of the opinion that part of the problem was not so much what was happening with the British government, but the the people on the ground, the people who acted as governors and so on, their whole attitude and approach to the community and to the people in the community. You described the contents of table six for us. What is presented in this table? Okay, table six, a summary of damages and losses incurred in the riots. At the end of the riots, people who had secured losses or who faced losses presented um, a breakdown of the losses that they suffered from the riots. And so it is divided into the different districts. You have Kingston District, Leeward District, Windward District, and total damages. So you have damage to public buildings. And in the case of Kingston, the public buildings was mainly at the courthouse where during the, the melee, you had the damages, windows were broken. The prisons which were nearby was also damaged. The cable, cable house, which was not far was damaged. Damage to private buildings, including residences. Um, you have, um, well, some people were able to identify losses which they had included, a few because um, damage to motor cars. Some of the public officers who had gone to the meeting of the Legislative Council had their cars damaged. Private owners, that is, people who were not necessarily public officers, their cars were damaged. Um, lost by looting, trade stock of Korea and company. Now, Korea was a member of the Legislative Council. He was a merchant and also proprietor. And uh, for some reason, people were under the impression that the measures which were introduced into the Legislative Assembly and which the people were objecting to were actually spearheaded by Korea. So that once the writing started in the courtyard, Korea was just about 50 yards or so away. They moved over to his building and they began to loot and to steal and to destroy property. So he put in a claim for damages. Other persons, although um, it was difficult identifying who these other persons were, suffered some damages. Household effects and personal property. Um, again, one isn't clear how many of these. Then in the Leeward district, you have the telephone system. And the Leeward district here um, refers to the area of Camden Park where the looting and the writing had taken place on the day following the 22nd. So the telephone system, because they wanted to disrupt telephone communication between Camden Park and Kingston, bridges and culverts, a number of bridges were destroyed because they were trying to prevent the police who were going into the area, trying to prevent the police from getting to, to Camden Park. Um, private property would include the property of John de Sousa, you know, his house and his um, shop. The Winwood District, the largest damage to the Winwood District was from the telephone system. And uh, um, from very early, 
writers in that era realized that it was important to cut off communication between what was happening in that area of the country and Kingston, so that the people in Kingston were unaware of what was happening until after midnight when they got this call. I don't know how they were able to get the call that um, writing had taken place in Georgetown. Um, roads, private property damage. So most of the damage was really in Kingston and in the Windward and Leeward district, the telephone system in order to block communication with Kingston Way, which of course was where the police were, were located. So we have overall damage to public property, 241.06 pounds, and damage to private property, including motor cars, 651 pounds, and loss by looting for private persons, 2,567. And this looting, would have taken place mainly at the Correa's um, hardware, where um, once the people had left the right end of the quarter, they simply went over at Correa's and decided to to vent their anger on Correa's by by destroying or stealing what, what was in there. So it is mainly to show the extent of the damages caused on the 21st and the 22nd. Can you tell us about Leonard Mayers, Donald Romeo, and George Thomas? Why are they noteworthy in the events you narrate here? Yeah. No. when uh, George McIntosh was arrested and uh, the government had been trying, because they felt that George McIntosh was the main figure behind organizing this riots, they were trying to get as much information as possible and it seemed as though they read more than they should have into statements made by some of them. Um, George Thomas had mentioned who was this teacher we spoke about, um, had mentioned before, George Thomas, yeah. He said that he was near to, to McIntosh's store and he heard when some of the people came into McIntosh's store, they're saying, we come for orders, Papa, calling George McIntosh Papa. Mayors, who was a peddler, said that um, he heard, there were certain things he heard, and that um, he, he was crying when he was put in jail, saying, if it wasn't for George McIntosh, they would not have gotten into this. And other people in there said, do not bring George McIntosh into this. He has nothing to do with it. Then um, Romeo would also give some statements. But what is happening is that the government, because they wanted so badly to implicate George McIntosh, any little thing they said, they took without seriously investigating, they took it up. So when these people came to court now, they really changed, changed the tune because George Thomas, who said he heard them say, Dada, we come for instruction, said, said no, it, he saw it simply as a joke. Um, the guy, Miles, who, the peddler who spoke about crying in, in jail and saying nothing to he said he made no mention to all of that. And Romeo also made no mention of statements he had given to the police before. And then what the police said is that even if we try to discredit it, they would simply say that what we are telling now is the truth. So 
it was a situation where they were holding on to anything they, they could get because back in this was the main land they wanted to, to get at. So any little evidence, they were prepared to use it. Now, everything regarding their response to the writings within the trial depended on this mastermind, Macintosh. And once Macintosh was freed, everything really fell down. So much so that during the trials, they agreed that a number of people were there, were not really active participants, they were just carried away with the way things were. But people who they felt were seriously involved in the writing got got sentences and um a number of the others they, they simply got off of what you know what had happened so that um this is where george thomas and so on came in that they wanted to use them to build this case against mackintosh and really didn't didn't succeed because even the governor himself after a while admitted that george mackintosh was not playing the role which they or suggesting he played because when the writing started in the courthouse, George McIntosh actually, when the governor came down from the legislative assembly upstairs and came down in the courtyard to speak to the people, George McIntosh actually went into the, the courthouse, got a bell and rang the bell and asked people to be quiet. When they met with... um groups of people after the ride, George McIntosh was the one who facilitated it. And uh, as came out in the evidence, what the evidence showed is that George McIntosh, rather than being an instigator, was, was actually trying to bring about peace and to help the situation. So that at the trial of George McIntosh, after about five days, the defense, main defense lawyer who was from Trinidad, a man by the name of Hannes, who was a a well-known lawyer in Trinidad, he got up and he said, you know, we cannot, should not allow this fast to go on for much longer because you brought witnesses to prove that Macintosh was an instigator. And all of them are showing that Macintosh was actually assisting the situation. So they, they had to end the trial after the intervention of the defense lawyer. So the, the whole thing was to paint Macintosh in such a way that um, everything else would follow and they'll be able to take. But once that case against McIntosh fell through, then it was difficult for them to, to really come up with anything substantial. And that is where, you know, George Thomas and so on featured because they were seen as key witnesses to prove that George McIntosh was the figure, was the figure behind these rights. What transpired in St. Kitts earlier in 1935? How similar or different were these disturbances to those which took place in St. Vincent in the same year? Okay, the disturbances in St. Kitts were mainly around sugar and on the plantations. And in fact, it is of interest that um, the Chief Justice pointed out, he said, there's a big difference between what happened in St. Kitts and what happened in St. Vincent. He said, in St. Kitts, the writing was against individuals who owned plantations and owned businesses. He said in St. Vincent, however, the writing was against the government simply because it took place at a time when the Legislative Assembly was meeting, when the governor and the persons who worked with him and were members of the Legislative Assembly, when they were introducing measures to increase revenue. 
So he was making that kind of distinction, whereas the governor started out by saying that in the case of St. Vincent, and he was using the issue of the Italy-Abyssinia war to show that this was not against the government, but this was against whites and against people. So there was a conflict between some of the authorities on where that started. But in St. Kitts, it was centered around sugar and the plantations and so on. Whereas in the case of St. Vincent, it was clearly in the main town meeting of the legislative assembly. The focus was on the governor and on the activities and on what he had been trying to do to raise revenue by taxing, to some extent, poorer people, even though when the governor introduced the measures, he was saying, we are introducing these on luxury items, but included among the luxury items with matches and beer. And so, you know, that, that, is, that is clearly the way. And this is what stands out, not only with regard to St. Kitts, but also with some of the other islands, that this was something against what the government was doing. And uh, it was interesting that at that time, the main area where you had plantation, that is where you had the Mount Bentic estate to the north in the Georgetown area. And all the workers came there and they were very angry about a number of things. Yet their attention was not focused on the estate. But some of them had participated in riots in Georgetown itself, where they destroyed, certain, well, not destroyed, but they attacked certain buildings. And this points to the fact that in St. Vincent, plantations were, there were very few plantations of any significance um, involved in things like sugar. And in the case of Monbentic, even though they were, Monbentic was the largest sugar estate at that time, one of the few estates still producing sugar. The anger of the people was not focused on the estate, but on the town itself. What was Shakerism? Can you describe what this movement was? What were the various responses and reactions to Shakerism? Yeah. No. Shakerism was believed to have emerged in the 1840s, shortly after emancipation. It was a religion um, and based on my own research, even though I cannot point exactly to when Shakerism started, we know that it first emerged in the 1840s near to the Calder estate. And based on the evidence available, I am of the view that Shakerism, or what's called the Shaker religion, started on the estates. And once people began to after emancipation to move away from the estate and to set up their own villages and, and their own to live on the lands which they had leased or bought, the religion emerged, became, people became more conscious of the religion. And it spread not only from that called the area, but to other parts of St. Vincent. And the reaction of the authorities was to call the Shaker religion a remnant of African barbarism. So they are showing the connection between that and Africa. Now, a number of these shakers, because of the way the society was organized, in order to get their children 
baptize and even to get them into schools, they had to forego their involvement and become members of another church. So many of them were nominal members of the Methodist church, even though their true religion was the Shaker religion, which by that time had spread throughout the country. And uh, so that happened until at various because their practice was different, very different from the practice of the traditional churches, Methodist, the Anglican and the Roman Catholic churches. And uh, this went on with a number of churches being very critical of the Shaker religion because it was taken away a number of these poor people who felt more comfortable going to the Shaker churches where the way they dressed was not important and where women had greater authority than they had in the traditional churches. So an effort was made to ban that religion and it did not come into effect until 1912 when uh, there was a lot of anger by people from the traditional churches and other people in St. Vincent um, in the elite section of St. Vincent. So they were able to ban the Shaker, Shaker religion in 1912. And people who participated in the religion also, although the authorities in uh, creating this legislation to ban the religion, although they themselves could not describe what the religion was. They left it up to the magistrate to decide what was Sheikh, the Sheikh religion, religion. So a number of people were prosecuted for being members of the Sheikh religion or the Sheikh church. And in one particular case in the 1930s, you had a man who was at his um, the bedside of his ailing wife praying for her. The police intervened and accused him of being a shaker because they saw him kneeling, praying for his wife. So many of them did not understand what shakerism was all about, but a lot were being prosecuted. And in 1936, just before McIntosh got into the Legislative Assembly, you had over 90-something persons being accused and arrested because the claim that these persons were shaker. And McIntosh, from the very beginning, became involved. One of his main activities was to fight to have the ban on the shaker religion um, removed. And from the time he got into the Legislative Assembly in 1937 until he left in 1951, he was constantly fighting this battle on behalf of the Shakers, who were poor people. And uh, when there was legislation passed against the Shakers practicing their religion in the town, McIntosh himself, who lived in Kingston, in a part of Kingston, he actually accommodated Shaker religious Shaker meetings, or sh in in his in his house his yard which was clearly against um, the regulation. So McIntosh fought against it because he felt that these were poor people and they were being victimized because they were poor and because they, their particular way of practicing the religion seemed more um, reminiscent of what was happening in Africa than elsewhere. He came out and he fought on, on their behalf. And that is one of the the things about McIntosh that, that stood out because 
he was taking a stand on behalf of poor people, even using his house, his yard, which he's not supposed to do, to um, make his point that the ban on the Sheikh religion should be removed. Can you expound upon D.A. Niles' poem, Depression? What is your interpretation of it? How is this poem connected to the events that you describe more broadly in this study? No, the, the poem, at a time when you are trying to get a sense of what the economic situation was, um, Niles was able, through his poem, to create a picture of what was happening economically in St. Vincent. And you know, he spoke about the impact of the, the depression on the people and how, how they were feeling. So it is important in that sense, because even though the newspapers might write about um, people in Georgetown in another era feeling the effects of it, it does not come home to you as much as a poem written by somebody who, who is experienced, who is looking at what is going on, who is feeling what is going on, who is writing about it from that particular point of view. So in order to build a picture of the economic situation at that time, the poem by Daniels really, really fits in very well because within to provide a context for the riots, the depression, worldwide depression, was hitting St. Vincent at a late stage. And these colonies being dependent on importations from overseas and also on selling their products overseas really became, the country became a victim of of the depression. So Niles really in his poem sums up what it meant to the country and what the whole economic situation was was about. So it is in this sense used as part of, of creating that kind of context of what the country was undergoing based on the fact that, well, the they, um, involvement in the Great Depression came at a later stage, but they were beginning to feel the effects and it was impacting on people and on the society generally. What was the relationship like between the island of St. Vincent and the other islands that composed the Grenadines during the period of time described in your book? What were the social, cultural, economic, and political relations between the bigger and smaller islands in the country we now re refer to as St. Vincent and the Grenadines? Yeah, well, this was, um, this was something that had been, to, to some extent, to the people in the Grenadines, the Grenadines were like forgotten brothers because... The, um, the distance from St. Vincent by that time, given the kind of boats and transportation that they had, some of them had a closer relationship with Grenada because one of the Grenadines, Caribou, was, was fairly near to Union Island. And um, the Grenadines were often felt, and I'm even bringing that to later, to a later stage, were felt as an area where if you wanted to punish people in St. Vincent, you would send them down to the Grenadines. So the Grenadines have always grown up with, with that, that, even though we are part of this country, we are not um, 
looked on as one of the country and looked on as people who are out there who have a relationship with us. And that went on for quite a long time. It was not until the 1960s that you began to have a change. For a long time, that would happen, that the islands were there. Um, people, in order to get have access to secondary education, you had to come to Kingstown. And that meant being away from your family for a long time. I mean, unlike now, almost every hour you could get a boat going to, particularly to, to Beckway. But at that time, you're going to school, you will have to be away from your relatives for quite a long time until the holidays come. So there was that kind of relationship. And the Grenadines had developed a different kind of mentality. For instance, when George McIntosh, St. Vincent Walking Men's Association, um, began to dominate parliament, the only seat they could not win was the seat in the Grenadine because the Grenadine had developed a certain amount of independence at that time. They, many of them traded with the, the other islands and um, because they, they were people who traveled by boat, it was easy for them to get to places like Grenada and Trinidad. So it was a different kind of thing where many people from the mainland would not have gone to the Grenadine. Many people from the Grenadine would not have gone to to the mainland. So there was that kind of very strange relationship. And at that time, it was St. Vincent, the Grenadines were separate. It is only in recent times that we realized that we need to show that we are part of the same country. So that is why you have St. Vincent and the Grenadines, as opposed to St. Vincent and the Grenadines. So, so that, that is something which from very early um, you know, existed. And on the, in the Grenadines, Beckway and Mustique, I think, produced sugar. Most of the others were producing cotton. So the whole atmosphere was, was a bit different. But it is a long history that goes back from that time up until, until recent times. Can you comment on the treatment of prisoners in the 1935 riots? How many people were arrested? Where were they held? What befell them while in prison? What kinds of trials took place surrounding uh, the participants? Is there any evidence about police conduct in responding to the 1935 riots? Yeah, that, that is one of the areas where there's very little information simply because of the, the legislation which is put in, into place to, to try to stifle information. Over 140 something persons were, were arrested. The prisons obviously could not accommodate most of them. Um, some of them were held at the fort. Some of them were held at the cotton ginnery. Some were sent to Grenada. And even after the trials for those who were convicted, you had to send some to St. Lucia and Grenada. Um, I think a lot of them would have had bail before the trial started. But um, I think I have here with, with, with some mm -hmm. of those who were arrested. If I could just look at it, because it shows that. Um, 
Yeah, for instance, I have a list of, I think, 26 men and four women mm -hmm. who were sentenced to years of hard labor. Mm -hmm. 26 men and four women, and some of the men who got the had the sentences, which was 10 years in its hard labor, were some of the names that came out. Sheriff Lewis got nine years. Martin Durham was one person who had been involved in an area called Payne Garden. And you have a number of, of the others. And there were these four women. There is a woman who, um, people have always spoken about who had been one of the main women involved in the riots and her name was Bota Mutt. But when I look at the, the persons who were convicted, Bota Mutt's name is not mentioned at all. And I suspect that what happened is that Bota Mutt might have been simply a name, a nickname rather than a real name. But quite a number of them, and the, the thing is, it, is that after the case against Mackintosh fell through, the, the um, government seemed to have lost its whole enthusiasm about pursuing some of the others. So after a while, they decided that the best thing to do, okay, you deal with some of those who you thought were strongly involved. So they gave them the 10 and 9, 8 and 7 years. Some of the others, they gave lighter sentences. Some they felt had not been, uh, had just simply been carried away with what was going on. Some of them were in the courtyard, simply following what was going on and were not really involved. In. So the, the whole thing broke down after the McIntosh case. And so a number of names, of course, and most of them did not serve all of their sentences, but some of them did go to St. Lucia because the accommodation. We, we have little information about how they were treated. And um, even, even the, um, the records, the police barracks, where some of the original records would have been held, was burnt at one time, and a lot of their documents went away. And the documents in the registry itself you, you could not find any documents related to, to the actual trials. But by that time, the, I think the authorities realized that they were handling something that they had to be careful about. But there was always fear that if they impose very harsh penalties on these people, they would be rioting again. So that was always one of their concerns. And that was one of the reasons why they had kept these regulations, the vicious publication, the emergency regulations on in place for such a long time because their fear was that people would begin to react when sentences were passed against some of these people whom they had arrested. But unfortunately, a lot of the information about how they were treated is not really is not mm. really available. Can you describe the significance of the Vis the Vincentian newspaper? When was this paper founded? How widely did it circulate? What were its opinions and perspectives? What role did it play in the events you describe? Yeah, the Vincentian newspaper started in 1919 and in fact still exists today. At, for most of that period, 
there were three weak, and these were weekly newspapers. And that, again, is one of the reasons why it's so difficult to get information because you, know, you have to wait a week for, for the news. And by that time, a lot of things, things were happening. The Vincentian newspaper was the most conservative of all, all these newspapers. It supported the planters, whereas the, the um, Investigator and the Times newspaper were edited or were owned by people who were involved in the Macintosh movement in the Representative Government Association. It's in Vinton Working Men's Cooperative Association. So they had a more liberal kind, kind of position. The Vincentian was always supporting the Amplanta class or being very skeptical of what was going on. So that in the riots, if you were to read these three newspapers, you'd see the Vincentian newspaper taking a different kind of position from the others. But it went on and um, while the other, even even when a, a new group of people were beginning to enter Parliament and the other newspapers were enthusiastic about what was happening, the Vincentian was very skeptical of this new kind of people because they were not the people who supported them and who they, who they were accustomed to, that is the party class. So it, that, that was their interest, supporters of the planter class, and they took that position throughout. Your book describes another of other newspapers in addition to the Vincentian, such as the Jamaican Daily Gleaner, the Port of Spain Gazette in Trinidad, the Barbados Advocate, the West Indian of Grenada, the Times and Canna Press. How are these press outlets' perspectives similar to or dis- different from the Vincentians? Well, those other newspapers, they, they came in at the time when these different legislation, they, when press censorship, seditious publication, ordinance, and so on, when those came into being, and they were strongly against them and they wrote about them. But the Port of Spain Gazette was given permission to publish the proceedings of the trial against trial of George McIntosh. And that probably has something to do with the fact that the main defense lawyer was from Trinidad. And so they were the only ones who were given permission to publish in all of the proceedings. The Kana Press um, was reporting because the person who had responsibility for the kind of presenting it was a Vincentian. He was reporting. Some of the other newspapers, like those from Barbados, was depending on um, people from St. Vincent providing them with the information. But because of the regulation that were put in place, some of them were actually actually came to St. Vincent on different occasions to get an understanding of what was happening. But largely, they were against the regulation that the government had put in place following the riots. And they called for a commission of inquiry. And they supported strongly what people in the McIntosh group of people, they supported strongly what positions they were were taking. Um, So they were really, they supported the St. Vincent Press generally, I mean, with the exception of the, the Vincentian, which has taken a different kind of position. And 
they were using the occasion to publicize what was happening in St. Louis and call in particular for a commission of inquiry and that those who are responsible for the deaths that occurred in St. Vincent, that those persons be, be held accountable and, and be punished. So they really played a role of support and um, trying to publicize what was happening and trying to put pressure on the authorities to really bring to justice some of those who, who were responsible for killing persons who had been involved in the riots. Can you describe the social, cultural, and physical geography of Kingstown, St. Vincent's in the early and mid-1930s? Can you describe the setting of the story you tell? Um, how does the city and the location help us contextualize what you are narrating? Okay, um, St. Vincent, in St. Vincent, Kingstown was the capital. And for a long time, a lot of the the other towns were rural towns. Most of the main activity took place in Kingstown. Georgetown, which existed to the north of the country, that was in an area which um, surrounded a, a number of the large estates during the period of slavery and therefore benefited, benefited from that. But Kingstown was the, the main town economic activity. Um, most of people had to come to Kingston to do what, whatever they, they wanted to do. I think the, the population of Kingston, of St. Vincent, sorry, in, well, this was in 1931 when the census was done, would have been about 47,000. I cannot recall what the population of Kingston itself would be, but I suspect about seven or 8,000. And you know, so it was the main center of activities. Um, the merchants, the um, what, whatever activity was going on, really centered around Kingston. And uh, so you would have uh, buses coming from the other areas daily. And in the case of the leeward side of the island, the western side of the island. Up to the 1930s, boats were the chief means of communication. So um, I was reading a book by a Vincentian doctor who was in primary school and who was probably about eight years or, or maybe less in 1935. And he described how one day, the, the boat came in sometime in the afternoon and they were hearing news about disturbances in Kingstown. So a lot of the information really got to these outer areas late because um, telephone communication was not very good. And in the case of the Georgetown, the windward side, the rioters deliberately cut off telephone communication. So Kingston was the center of activities. Um, everything coming into St. Vincent came through Kingston. The schools, secondary schools would be mainly in Kingston. Um, it had um, 
on the outer skirts of Kingston would have been estates by the 1930, some of these water estates before incorporated into Kingston itself. And um, so from that, that point of view, whatever happened in Kingston really affected the rest of the country. And fortunately, had communications been better developed at that time, what happened the days of the riots could, could have spread for, for the, but for the fact that there was not ready communication with some of these areas. And in the case of Georgetown, for instance, for most of the day in Georgetown on the 21st of October, the first day of the riots, things were calm in Georgetown. But when the bus came out in the afternoon, they reported on what was happening in Kingston. And that in itself triggered off a lot of activities because people, whether they were in Georgetown, Kingston or wherever, were feeling some of the, the same effects. So news of the way people responded in Kingston really triggered something in some of these other countries so that what happened in Kingston affected Georgetown much later. Now, Camden Park, which is um, just a few miles from Kingston, and a lot of people at that time, in order to get to Kingston, would walk from Camden Park to Georgetown. Many of them were in Kingston on the day of the riots. And when they went back and they told her what was going on, and, they, and that is where the thing with, with John, with the Sousa came in, because by the time they get into town, all of the information filtered around, and then people began to focus their attention on, uh, on John Sousa. So the main capital, and uh, at that time, Sinvitz was a, to some extent a one tongue country. Um, the others were rural or rural villages with some services, post offices, you had have clinics and so on. But the main center of activities was in Kingston. So every day, if you wanted to have a good, so anything you wanted to do, really, you had to go to Kingston. This book was published in 2016, and it is now 2023. Can you tell us about the response to your book and the reception of your book in the years since you have published it? No, I could only speak about um, in St. Vincent. Mm -hmm. um, well, let me say, first of all, that a lot of the books which I've written, including one I've done on the Indigenous people and Chatea, were really geared to a public eager for this kind of information. The 1935 riots was done to cater to the academic community. That's why, for instance, it was published by the University of the West Indies Press. Now, I'm not sure about the research because it's so largely through, through um, Amazon, and I'm not sure about the, the extent of that. But we were able to sell a, a few hundred copies in St. Vincent's itself. And I think that the, the bookshops um, associate part of the University of the West Indies would, would have had copies of this. I don't know if it's used in any of the courses at all, but it was geared to a sort of academic readership more than anything else. Can you tell us about any new thinking you have come to in regard to this topic since 2016? 
Have you learned anything new regarding this topic since the completion of this book? Has your contemplation on this topic changed in any way? Why or why not? Can you can you elaborate? Yeah, not not really. I mean, what I stated still stands out in terms of um, some of these islands being not part of the not occupying a strong place as part of the traditional history of the Caribbean. And a lot still needs to be done. And as I do more and more research, there are a number of other things which also need to be to be highlighted. One of them, we are getting a lot more people interested in, let's say, the indigenous people, in the whole history of the indigenous people. A lot of scholars are now beginning to pay attention to. And that is part of my plan in writing some of these things to draw attention to things happening in St. Vincent in particular that need to be brought into the mainstream of Caribbean history. Um, there, there are some other things. One, one um, for instance, the exile of King Jaja, which it's mentioned by an but not where in the 1880s, King Jaja, who was from Nigeria, Nigerian prince, was exiled to St. Vincent because of British effort to control the palm oil, in, palm oil industry, of which he was a key figure in Nigeria. He was sent to St. Vincent to be in exile, sent in 1988. But he became very sick at one time and was pleading to be sent back to Nigeria. Eventually, when it was decided in 1991, three years after the sending back to Nigeria, that he had to spend three months in, um, in Barbados. And on his way from Barbados back to Nigeria, he actually died. So he was not able to, to um, he wanted more than ever to get to his homeland before he died. He, he, he never did. So you have that. And uh, there are a number of other things. For instance, um, when we speak of West Indian history, one of the things that stands out very much is the 1865 Moran Bay Rebellion in Dominica because it had an impact in the constitutional development and so on. But in St. Vincent, the same issues which generated or which sparked off the 1865 riots in St. Vincent occurred in 1862. But St. Vincent is a small island and did not have the kind of impact on British thinking as, say, in St. Vincent. They, they were more interested in Jamaica, in the larger islands, Jamaica, Trinidad, Barbados, and so on. And part of our thing is to make sure that what we write about these countries that greater attention be paid to them to see in what way they affect the way we are looking at Caribbean history generally. And that's part of my purpose about writing um, on things that are happening here and see in what way it relates to our traditional concept of um, Caribbean history, in what way it differs, what could it contribute to of an overall understanding of Caribbean history. And as I look again, and I'm about to do this, look again at this particular period, I would uh, 
pay much more attention to that because I would have mentioned to you before we actually started this interview that I am presently engaged with three other colleagues in writing a history mm -hmm. of Grenadines, updating mm -hmm. our history. And um, so one of the area, um, areas I'm going to look at is this, taking into consideration what would have been written since and to see what needs to be revised. But some of the basic um, themes and understandings still exist. But there are a number of other developments that we're able to feature them into the other development to see in what way the impact went, went beyond you know, what I'd written about here, because my main emphasis was the riots and the uh, and adult suffrage. But um, there are a number of other things that happened that we might be able to pay much more attention to as we begin to reflect now on what happened after 1935. As we bring our dialogue to a close, can you go into more detail about the research that you have just alluded to can you tell us some of the findings? Can you tell us about the preliminary evolution of this current research of yours? Okay. Now, after writing this book, I began to pay a lot more attention to the history of the indigenous people in that it was not well known that St. Vincent was, first of all, one of the last of the countries in the Caribbean to be colonized by the British and by, by the Europeans generally. And um, we begin to pay also a lot of attention to how were they able to do that? How come after the British had conquered and and virtually gotten rid of the indigenous people in most of the, the other colonies, except in Dominica, where you have a part of the indigenous population living. Why was St. Vincent able to do that? And I think that this is important in understanding the overall, uh, in our understanding of, of our history generally, that these people fought with the kind of primitive weaponry they had. And uh, it is important to understand how they were able to do this. And it is really amazing because it affected the sugar industry. It affected what St. Vincent became. So we paid a lot of attention to that. And coming out of, of that was the fact that our first national hero was um, an indigenous person, the chief of what were called the Caribs then, we now know them as two distinct people, the Kalinagos, who were the original yellow or red caribs that the British call them, and the Garifuna. And the Garifuna people were a combination, but it came out of the cohabitation between mm -hmm. the original yellow caribs, as they call them, and African escaped slaves. They formed what is called the Garifuna people. And by 1763, when the British took over, the main dominant group in St. Vincent were the Garifuna, the, the Kalinago, the original Kalinago, were mm -hmm. very low in number. So the struggle by the Garifuna went on from 
virtually from 1763, 1766, actually until 1797. And as a result of this, when uh, the war ended in 1796, a number of these people were captured and put on a small island of the Grenadines called Baliso, um, were kept there until they were ready to be sent to exile, first of all, at Ruatan of Honduras. And then from Ruatan, they were able to move to Belize, to Honduras itself, to Guatemala, and to Nicaragua. And today, they are really an important part of the population of those areas, but their um, homeland. And it is, it is really interesting to find that in the Caribbean, you have a people who could turn to another country and say, that's where my ancestors came from. Wow. And I had this feeling when I first went to Belize and they heard I was from St. Vincent. And they said, oh, that's where, that's my homeland. And they have been wow. trying to, to build the relationships between those who remain in St. Vincent and those who, who were expelled. So that is part of the development that had been taking place. And the area in which they were kept as a holding place until they were ready to be sent to Central America. An area called Baliso has a very significant place in the history of these people because um, the numbers suggest that some 4,000, almost 5,000 people were kept and holding at Baliso. But Baliso is a very small island with no rivers, no running water. And you had mm. over 4,000 people there. And by the, time, by the time they were ready to be sent from Baliso, half of them had died. Wow. So those persons who went to, who went abroad, they see Baliso as a place that is there to them. And there is um, a struggle to have the British use it as a sort of museum. Um, something in a tribute to those persons who have died. And the part of what we are doing in this new history book is to recreate that situation and try to, to come across, because one of the things about um, the early history of St. Vincent is that the indigenous people did not leave accounts of what took place. So our accounts were from the British and to some extent from the French, because um, even though the French have their, had their own biases, they lived more closely with the indigenous people than, than the British. So that in trying to recover that history of the indigenous people, we have to take into account the biases of the British, the way they went about writing this history and the purpose of writing it. And I usually keep in my office something called it's an African proverb which says, until the lions have their historians, tales of hunting would always glorify the hunter. And that is something that drives me when I'm speaking about the indigenous people, that their story has not yet been told, but it is our job using whatever means we have to try and correct some of the, the um, stories that were meant only to glorify the hunters and who said very little because to them, the people who they were hunting, the indigenous people were primitive, 
they were described as, as cannibals, and one has to rewrite that whole story to get a different kind of picture. And also to, to try to reverse the impact which this would have, ha would, would have had on the children of these indigenous people, because they went to schools where they were told that their people were cannibals, and they, they had to deal with that psychologically. And when you look at that, and that is why it was important that Chatelier be made a national hero, because I think that made a, a difference. A lot of this was stimulated in the 1990s. It started before the 1990s, but in 1992, when they celebrated the quincentenary of the arrival of Columbus, a lot of the indigenous people felt that they need more than ever before to write their own history and give their own story. And part of what we are trying to do with the indigenous people is to do is to do very that. As we end our conversation today, I'd like to confess my absolute gratitude to you for your generosity in participating in this conversation with me and for all the erudition that you invested both in our interview today and in this marvelous volume. It's an outstanding piece of scholarship that I could not recommend enough to our listeners. Thank you very much. And I'm really glad for the opportunity to have spoken to you about, about the book. It was my honor. Thank you. Thank to you our listeners, much. to our listeners, I'm your host on the New Books Network, Ari Barbalat. I've been in dialogue today with Adrian Fraser regarding his new book, The 1935 Riots in St. Vincent from Riots to Adult Suffrage, published by University of West Indies Press 2016. Adrian is a social commentator, historian, author, and columnist with the Searchlight newspaper. He is former coordinator of the Caribbean People's Development Agency and retired head of the University of the West Indies Open Campus in St. Vincent and the Grenadines. He was a teacher at the undergraduate level and also worked at the community level with various non-governmental organizations. Adrian was an active member and active participant in Caripeda, the Caribbean People's Development Agency. Well, th thank thank you. you very much, Ariane. I was really glad for the opportunity to speak to you about the book. So. Thank you. It was my pleasure. It was really my honor.